Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyover Labs. This is Dave Cruz from Madison, Wisconsin. And today we are lucky enough to have Julian Tegelius with us. Julian is an Associate Professor of Computer Science and Engineering at New York University. And he's doing some super interesting research around artificial intelligence and video games. And so this research, of course, has implications within video games, but also beyond. And some of his research is around using AI to adapt games in real time um, and make opponents more intelligent. And an area called uh, procedural content generation, which is using AI that essentially builds video games using a machine. So it's pretty fascinating stuff, especially if you like video games like myself um, and machine learning. So this is like the best of both worlds. So that's why I invited uh, Julian on the show. So I'm really excited to have him today. And uh, we have a lot to talk about. So let's get started. Uh, Julian, thanks for uh, coming on the show today. Yeah, hi. Thanks for thanks for inviting me. So I'm happy to be here. Well, yeah, <laughs> I'm technically in New York right now, but here in, in uh, the same place as I was based. I wish I was in New York right now. I love New York. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, and maybe let's uh, before we get into your research, uh, could you maybe just give a little background where you're from and you know how you got into yeah. doing video game research, and that'd be great. Yeah. So so so. As you might hear from my accent, um, I'm not from around here. Um, <laughs> I'm from Sweden, grew up in Sweden. When did my undergrad in Sweden, I uh, decided that, uh, well, I mean, I, well, I finished high school. <clears throat> when I was finished high school, I hated maths and wanted nothing to do with it ever again. Um, so I decided to study philosophy and psychology at university in Lund in Sweden because I wanted to understand the mind. And, and I did that, and gradually I became more and more frustrated because I, I, I'm not a man of very much patience. And, uh, and philosophy, I mean, nothing really happens there. <laughs> you read the text of all the people, and you sort of you quarrel about definition of words and so on. So I took more psychology courses as well, and, and very dissatisfied with the methods. Basically, I mean... It's, you can only really scratch the surface. Um, you can't really, you can't really get, get to the core mechanisms very easily. So I started taking some computer science courses as well. Um, I'd already sort of, I mean, like many others, I was a bit of a self-taught programmer, um, <clears throat> so it was fairly easy to get into it. So then I went to England, did a master's in evolutionary and adaptive systems. So basically, the um, uh, the um, interplay between theoretical biology and computer science essentially um, and what I what I thought was that I still wanted to understand the mind but um, I uh, wanted to I, I figured out I had to build a mind first in order to understand it so I mean the computer science seemed like it was much more fun because things happen you could build things and they sort of worked so after that I um, went on to do PhD I started a company and so on um, did a bit of social networking stuff before before in the pre-Facebook era um, I started a PhD at the University of Essex in England, and I thought I was going to do evolutionary robotics, so using evolutionary algorithms, um, basically 
um, Darwinian evolution in the form of, um, in, in algorithmic form, to design neural networks that will control robots. So I started a little bit down that path. And what year still, was that? They were still like basically. What year is yeah, that? This when... was sort of my, I started my PhD in 2004. Okay. So I, um, uh, and uh, I thought that well, that's what I was going to do. But then I figured out that, I mean, it's very slow going that as well because you have to use robots and robots break down all the time and uh, they need oil and you have to sort of use screwdrivers. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm still a very impatient person and not a very practical person when it comes to sort of physical devices. So I got a bit bored with that as well. <clears throat> and then figured out that this thing with computer games, hey, so what I wanted to do was to um, build artificial intelligence so I could understand the mind. And I didn't actually want to build it myself. I wanted evolution to build it for me. So I wanted to design evolutionary algorithms that could evolve neural networks that could <clears throat> um, that would be intelligent, could control robots. And I figured out that let's do that, but robots are far too slow. So why not use computer games instead? We can speed them up to like a thousand times real time. And you know, the worst thing that can happen is that the game crashes, which is much less bad than if a robot sort of you know um, runs into a wall or something. One of my friends and colleagues back then, he was um, evolving neural networks to fly miniature helicopters, and his room was like littered with pieces of miniature helicopters, <laughs> and I didn't want to do that. So, <laughs> so basically, I went into that, and then I figured out that actually, it's true that you can use um, um, games to test AI, and it's very much true, and it's like one of the main reasons we'll do what I do. But I also figured out that there are lots of really interesting AI promising games, which are not about playing them well but about lots of other things that are more relevant for game development, the game design, and the game industry, <clears throat> such as being able to create um, um, create environments and levels and so on in games, and modern human players adapt games to players. Uh, and um, that's the sort of realization um, led to a few papers that um, became sort of minor classics in this area. And uh, <clears throat> which are, which are really sort of which really kickstarted my career properly, um, where I did work on evolving racing tracks for particular players and so on, and then some early work on um, uh, on evolving rules for games. Um, and uh, I went to Lugano in Switzerland to um, to do a PhD or to do a postdoc. I mean, after my PhD in um, machine learning um, under Jürgen Schmidhuber. Um, who is a famous um, machine learning researcher. Um, and uh, I worked a lot with recurrent neural networks and so on over there. Um, then I moved back to Sweden, started working in Denmark. So I was commuting over a national border every day, which is sometime, something that when you tell this to Americans, they're a bit like incredulous. What? You're commuting over a national border? <laughs> um, which is like, they, they imagine something like, oh, you're commuting from U.S. to Mexico or something, <laughs> which is... <laughs> Which would, which would clearly not be a very good idea, but it's, it's much easier in Europe. Um, and uh, I joined a group at the IT University of Copenhagen, which was, had a very, very strong game studies group. Um, <clears throat> so I got that component and started sort of learning more about the academic study of games and uh, from various perspectives and on of both sort of games as social constructs and games as design. And my research got closer to game design in various ways. And now, since one and a half year, I'm here in New York, um, and uh, I'm uh, currently very much building up my research group um, over here at MOU, 
working with the people at the game center, working with Emily Nealon here at the computer science department, and uh, yeah, generally enjoying it a lot. So very much carrying on this idea that I'm still interested in the mind. I'm still interested in what intelligence is, but I'm also very much interested in how can we make games better through um, through interesting AI techniques, and how can we make AI better through interesting games to test AI. So yeah, that's that's who I am now. I think. <laughs> no, that's great. And and since we'll talk about neural networks a fair amount, could you maybe give? Well, if you can, a, a quick definition for folks if they're not too familiar with the what they are. Yeah, neural networks are um, originally they were meant to be very simplistic models of the brains, mm -hmm. um, brains of humans or of other animals. But that's really sort of the mystifying way of explaining what they are. Actually, they are just they're just equations, coupled mm -hmm. equation systems, nonlinear. So what you have in your network is a mathematical object um, which has a number of a number of nodes connected by weights, and you put in numbers um, in, in one in one end of them, and the numbers could mean could be like you know any kind of variables that um, go into a database, or could be the sensor readings from a robot or something like that. Else. And then on the other hand, you get you get you get some other um, at the other end of the network you get some um, some other numbers out. Um, which could be interpreted as some prediction about life expectancy, or it could be a um, uh, could be interpreted as um, the direction in which the robot should turn, or something like this. It all depends very much on on what we're using it for. And the trick here is to learn all the variables inside the neural networks. These are called weights or connection weights or um, synaptic weights, if you use the biological interpretation. And there are different ways of, of training those. So neural networks are very, I mean, they used to be popular in the 60s. <clears throat> then they were very much, very much unpopular for another, like, for 15 years or so. Then in mid-80s, they became big again after the rediscovery of the backpropagation algorithm, which, um, <clears throat> sets, which basically is a way of um, setting these weights, so training the neural networks they, um, using... Um, using target data. So basically, you can train a neural network based on lots of input and then lots of what kind of output you actually wanted to, um, and, and wanted to learn. And then you can use the backpropagation algorithm. Then your networks fell out of favor a bit in the 90s, early 2000s, because um, essentially because lots of people from a more mathematical background um, hated them because they couldn't understand them. Hmm. Because neural networks have this property that they're sort of black boxes. Um, you can prove lots of things about them mathematically, um, because they are, in a, in a sense, mathematical objects. But all these mathematical proofs are sort of pointless, or almost pointless. Um, the theory doesn't really help. It's a bit of a black. So tuning this black box is a bit of a black art. Um, uh, you uh, um, <clears throat> need to understand the neural networks and how to train them, and it's a, yeah, it's sometimes more of an art than a science. Um, so other machine learning methods um, fell into favor, but now since 2000, ah, 2010 or something, neural networks are back with a vengeance and super, super, the, the super hot thing and everybody's investing in them. And what has happened is essentially partially that there are a couple of new tricks and a couple of new neural net, net, network um, 
new decentralized networks are being um, being invented, um, and partially because we have so much better computing power, and specific, uh, specifically because we can use graphics cards to do um, do a lot of the computation. Um, uh, but actually, what we have is uh, is um, um, at, at at the core of it, it's the same DNN neural networks we had in the 80s. So it's the same principles, and with a couple of more bells and whistles on. So these are very very versatile methods that you can use. You can use for training, <clears throat> and, and you can use for learning lots of different functions, either from data um, or from feedback. So you can learn. Basically, you can divide them up into the kind of methods that learn how to predict something based on lots of target data. You know, you have all the inputs and you know what outputs you want. Or based on the feedback from the world, say you're training a robot to behave, um, and the only thing you're telling it is that that's right, that's bad. You know, it gets it gets uh, positive feedback for um, <laughs> for getting from A to B and uh, negative feedback for bumping into the table or something and eventually <laughs> to learn. So for so, its... So what differentiates somebody who's, uh, in your mind, really good at training neural networks versus not? Is it, you, know, you said it's an art as much as a science. And, uh, you, know, the... yeah, you need to understand them. Yeah. I mean, and, I mean, part of it, you pack, practice makes perfect. <clears throat> you need to, you need to um, see how they actually empirically behave in lots of different circumstances. So use a lot of neural networks. But you also, it also really helps to be able to code them up yourself and actually program them. So, uh, makes sense. And, that's all right, so let, let's talk yeah, about so the, the, Oh, go ahead. No, no. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, let's chat a little bit about your research. And, I, and I'm kind of curious, you know, back to when you started doing a AI research around video games to now, you know, what, what was that first project you worked on? And curious how um, the, re, your, the research has developed and changed or improved since then. Oh, yeah. So, so, so one particular project, which was maybe not the first thing I worked on, but was important for me. So basically, my advisor back then was interested in radio-controlled car racing, you know, the kind of oh, yeah. Yeah. crappy radio-controlled cars you can buy for $10 in a, in, 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 at the gas station. And um, um, we had the idea that we would teach um, and, uh, teach basically a system to, to, uh, to race these cars based on an overhead camera. But um, that would be very expensive, basically, um, in terms of time and also in terms of destroyed cars, um, <laughs> to, uh, to 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 basically train with, with a real with, with a real racing cars. So what I did was that I wrote up a very simple simulation, which was essentially a simple two-dimensional racing games. I wrote it in in Java, and I wrote it. I mean, I don't know much about physics, so I I just basically. <laughs> Invented some some physics um, <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, and 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 it, let, let, let's say this was not a very good physics model, but hey, it sort of worked. Yeah, yeah. And you could play it as a player, and it was, I mean, it wouldn't win any awards, but it was a little bit fun at least. You could play the game, and uh, and it was about like um, getting around the tracks as soon as possible or as fast as possible. So then I started training, I mean, neural networks to. Um, to drive this car around the track. And then what happens is that I'm using evolutionary algorithms. So basically, I had a neural network connected to a few sensors that in this car simulation measured how far it was to the wall at various points along the, along the car, and also how far it was to other cars. 
And the output was essentially um, yeah, the steering and the accelerator. You go left, right, forward, um, how much are you accelerating or braking? Um, and um, then I um, then what happened was that you use evolutionary computation here. So you have evolution, um, you have evolution um, and trying, so you have a population of, say, 100 neural networks. And then you put each of these neural networks uh, one at a time into the car and ask it to drive the car. Initially, all the neural networks are random. So um, <clears throat> they don't do anything useful at all. Most of them just like to just sit there, or maybe some of them just back away, or maybe one of them drives forward a little bit and then crashes into a wall. And and it's all it's all crappy behavior, really. <laughs> but some of it is a little, little bit less bad than the other. So you keep the ones that perform least bad, throw away um, the uh, the ones that are, perform the worst, and replace them with copies of those that perform um, and perform a little bit better. And also you mutate them. And sometimes you, you mix the neural networks up with each other. This is called crossover. And it's essentially analog of having sex. So basically, you let the neural networks have sex with each other and produce offspring. Nice. I never so heard just that like way. In, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so basically, it's... Uh, in uh, just like in biological evolution, you get offspring which are very similar to both parents, but um, a mix of both, plus also a little bit different because of random copying errors. And then over time, you do this many, many, many times, like a hundred generations and so on. <clears throat> and what happens is that it becomes a search process. You search through the space of possible neural networks that could drive these cars, so that. Um, um, you find you find those that I mean that start driving the car forward, and then they start um, and, and then they start figuring out that actually if there's something in front of me maybe I should turn, and then you get even further. So so the fitness function um, rewards them even further because of this, and then they continue um, learning to handle more and more different situations, and then in the end you have really really good um, drivers. And within a hundred generations with a population of hundred. I would usually get neural networks that drove this better in this game, or play this game, or drove this car better than I did. Really? Wow. How so, long would that take? Yeah, no. How long would it take to train? Uh, five minutes. Really? Mm. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and this one, uh, this was like yeah. 12 years ago, or 11 years ago, so basically it's a lot faster now. Um, <clears throat> so um, this is a very well-established technique at this point, but back then it was still well-established, but not that well-established, and I remember I got a Back in 2005, I got a Best Paper Award for this work, and I was very happy um, and, um, <clears throat> and, and and everything. And then I went home and sort of worked more on it and tried to sort of um, make these um, neural networks be able to sort of progressively learn to handle more and more challenging tracks. So basically, you start with training them to te teaching them to drive a simple track, and then you throw in more and more different racing tracks. And in the end, they can they can learn to navigate these really complex tracks and re drive them really really well, <clears throat> and and uh, uh, and uh, uh, and this is the kind of tracks that, we, we, that are very hard for most humans, and that these neural networks wouldn't be able to drive at all if you just told them to do that from the beginning. Um, so this sequence, this sort of instructional sequence, became very very important. I also looked into like if you have different cars and they all try to compete with each other. Um, and um, if you have one neural network controlling a red car, the other controlling a blue car, and then 
they their fitness is depending on not only on themselves but also on uh, on the other car does. And then you can sort of evolve them to come up with all kinds of interesting behavior, either behavior that sort of where they get along peacefully, share the share the road, and and both of them drive really fast, or those that where you if you basically award, award them not for getting as far as possible, but only for getting as far as possible ahead of the other car. Hmm. And then they learn these sort of yeah. asshole tactics, <laughs> where they will just basically push the other cars off the road and so on, <laughs> and it's a carnage. So it's a really interesting stuff. And dust up was really interesting also for um, was useful for. I mean, it, it could be useful in game design in various ways. But then at some point, after working on this for yeah, a year, year or two or something, then I thought had a thought. I think it was one of these classical shower thoughts, like, hmm, why not do it the other way around? Why does it not turn it, turn it around? So instead of, I mean, now, now I'm involving neural networks um, to drive cars on tracks. What if I instead evolve the tracks on which the neural networks drive cars? Hmm. Mm. So basically, so if I have some neural networks, that drive something like humans, you can teach them to drive a bit like human by humans by this back propagation algorithm. So you, you yourself drive a track a number of times, and then you teach neural networks to drive essentially like you. And then you want to come up with a track. You can evolve the track the same way you evolve neural networks. You have lots of um, racing tracks. Initially, all of them are random and really weird, and then you, and then you basically. Um, it makes small changes. So, I mean, keep the ones that are the, the, the least bad. Um, keep the ones that are, and, and throw away those ones. Those, those are more more bad and um, more bad. I mean, worse. And, <laughs> you know, replace them with with slightly changed copies of the less bad tracks and so on. And you you do that again and again and again and again and again. And in the end, you have some really nice racing tracks. That is, if you know what it means for a racing track to be good. And now we're approaching the general problem of actually automatically telling and um, um, saying what's good game design. Because what do you want? If you're playing a racing game, what do you want, really? Um, what do you want for the racing track? And uh, this is not straightforward at all. We started thinking that, well, maybe you want variety. You want some parts where, where, where you have to, where you can drive fast. Some parts where you can, um, uh, we um, we have tricky curves, so you have to navigate. Maybe you want um, um, racing tracks which differentiate as much as possible between different drivers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we experimented with a couple of these things, and this work became pretty influential. And then I started thinking, well, you can do this for lots of other things. I mean, um, yeah, basically that, that was the end of that project. But then I sort of took the same idea into all other kind of. Um, um, aspects of games, so not only sort of um, <clears throat> and, uh, racing tracks, but levels for platform games like Super Mario Bros. or um, uh, uh, maps for StarCraft or game rules for very simple games in, in, um, in themselves, so simple Pac-Man like games and so on. And I've, I don't know, this is um, this is clearly a topic where you can sort of um, wish you can keep digging it because there's so many more things you can apply these basic techniques to. So, yeah, yeah definitely. That was, I was, I was, yeah, I was, I was going to talk about a single project, but that sort of <laughs> derailed a bit. Oh, well, which project? 
So, I mean, that was going, you asked me to talk about oh, the yeah, that's right. That's right. No, that's, that was great. <laughs> I mean, no, that was, that was helpful. And I, I love your explanation on, uh, your, the first, you know, the pro- project, my first question is me, what are the inputs, outputs, but you, uh, nicely explained all that and how it all works. So that was, that was quite helpful. And, uh, so what, uh, you know, you have a, a few areas of focus for your research, but it seems like they, uh, kind of overlap quite a bit. Um, you know, whether it's yeah. a, and so, um, you know, when you're working on a, a new project, do you kind of, do they all kind of mesh together or do you say, Hey, I'm just going to work on, you know, procedural content generation and try to figure out how to create new, uh, levels or new games. Um, yeah. How, how do you go um, up, come across, yeah, come at your research? So, so where do projects come from? There's an interesting question. I, I'm generally motivated by, um, <clears throat> I mean, when I see something, when I see something I don't really understand, or when I see something where I don't understand how to do it. So recently, um, um, I was teaching a course on uh, um, on AI in games, and we're talking about different ways of playing different games. <clears throat> and um, so, for example, recently, a method called Monte Carlo Research has become very, very popular. And we use it a bit in different applications. Um, it's very useful for playing games where you don't know the rules in, in advance, like in general game playing. And it's also very useful for games such as Go. Um, so, as as you might know, I mean, chess um, for a long time was the uh, uh, it was sort of the <clears throat> um, uh, pinnacle of, um, or it was thought of as um, the pinnacle of intelligence, like um, that basically if you can play chess, you must be intelligent. Then in 1997, um, IBM um, comes around and takes the grand ch- grandmaster title in chess from uh, from humans and basically shows that a computer can play ch- chess better than any human can. And the algorithm to do this is very, very simple. Um, but then you have a classic Asian board game of Go, um, where um, which minimax the algorithm that... Um, uh, that basically could play chess better than, better than any human couldn't really deal with that because you have too many the branching factor is too high in goal you have too many possible moves at any given point you can make around 30 moves in chess whereas you can make around 300 moves in goal and the algorithm that um, eventually sort of conquered goal was called Monte Carlo Tree Search um, and it's a, it, it is a stochastic tree search algorithm basically it looks at all the possible future moves and all the possible consequences of future moves. But, of course, you can't look at all of them, so it uses statistics to uh, decide, to sort of um, stochastically decide where to look, which which moves to play out and which moves to look at the consequences of. So I was teaching about that in a course, and then there was um, <clears throat> one of my students wanted to do a project where he wanted to um, um, apply this algorithm to a strategy game called Hero Academy. And Hero Academy has this nice property that you're not moving only one unit, you're moving one many possible units. This is true for very, very many different strategy games. So we looked at how we could use this. I sat down with a student and we talked about, okay, Monte Carlo Tree Search, it's been very useful for so many games. Um, um, let's look at how it would work for this game. Hmm. Um, and um, it turned out that this was pretty hopeless because... Um, <laughs> Whereas 
um, he's just such a branch factor of 30. There are 30 different moves you can make um, every turn around. Um, Go has a branch factor of around 300. This sort of innocuous-looking strategy game that didn't seem that hard for humans, if you counted all the possible things you could do together, um, it became like many millions of possible moves. Whoa. So it was like, wow, <laughs> this is crazy, you know. Well, and, 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 and if we just took this Monte Carlo research algorithm and applied it, it just wouldn't work at all. I mean, it, would, it wouldn't get anywhere at all. <clears throat> so we started looking at a couple of different modifications of this algorithm, but we also thought of, um, why, why, why don't we just think of this problem from another perspective? Instead of looking at, you know, which move, um, which move does each unit make, um, and then select them one at a time. Why not look at, you know, if we take the, um, all the possible moves um, that all the units can make um, as one sort of one thing, one object, where the one which is where you can have like, you know, um, many, many, many millions of, then you can search the space of such objects. You can search the space of possible terms. And then we thought, well, hey, maybe we can use evolution here. So we tried that. And it worked like a charm. It was like amazing huh. how we sort of, you know, beat all the other solutions um, <clears throat> and by, by, by huge margins. So we recently got a paper published in that, in a paper in a conference um, um, uh, a few months ago. Um, and yeah, we were very, very happy about the results. We're definitely going to sort of keep exploring that. Currently, we're looking at if that kind of method can be used for StarCraft, for example, which it seems like maybe it can. Um, StarCraft um, is this um, real-time strategy game, which is famous for being extremely hard for computers to play. And it's pretty hard for humans as well, but there's a lot of sort of competitive high-level play. Um, uh, and uh, so that's one, one particular example, just looking at when I don't know how to do something and then trying to look at the methods we have, look at the perspectives we have, and see sort of what new thing we can, what, what we can pull out of the hat and adapt to sort of make this work. <clears throat> and, but it's also very clear that very often, I mean, the solution to one problem sort of, you know, comes with a number of new interesting research questions. So like the solution to how you, um, um, how do you drive a car on a racing track? Um, how do you learn to do that? Um, sort of suggested a couple of other interesting questions such as how do you actually avoid a racing track? So, I do keep, I mean, my job sort of as um, as the leader of a research lab um, or a research group is essentially to keep this um, uh, overall picture in my head and uh, connect everything to everything else. So if I have a, a solution to this problem, well, maybe this says something about, else about this other problem, for example. Huh, interesting. And and with the, I'm just curious that with, with the evolution uh algorithm how is how is that different than a typical neural network and yeah so these are interestingly different thing, things because basically a neural network is a computational structure um that um, basically maps inputs to outputs um and evolution in this so an evolutionary algorithm in this context is more like a way of training it you can train a neural network in many different ways so if you have, so basically, for example, if you have target data, if you know what you want the outputs to be for a lot of the different examples, then you want to use the version of backpropagation. So in most deep 
um, deep learning applications, um, <clears throat> you're training something like, for example, here's the here's like you know a million people in the database of everybody who lives in some city, and we have lots of inputs which telling them um, lots of interesting things about them, their age, their height, um, gender, whatever, and then we want to predict whether they are smokers or not, and then we have the target data. That's whether you smoke and when whether you smoke and you don't smoke. So you train all of these, um, um, you train neural networks using backpropagation um, on each of these examples. You input the, the example, and then you say the output does it smoke or not, or 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 he doesn't smoke, um, and then you and you correct the output. And you feed back the correction into the neural network, and that changes the neural network a little bit, so it, it gives a little bit better predictions, and you keep doing that all the time. This is called supervised learning. Um, supervised means that. Um, there is something that supervises the net and that that um, and that tells it what's right and wrong, um, and also what the right answer should be. Now, then there are then there are settings such as the reinforcement learning setting, where you don't know what the right answer should be. Um, instead, you just um, you just know when you're doing well and you're doing badly. Um, and in such cases, you can use something which is called um, <clears throat> temporal difference learning or Q learning which is um, quite popular these days. Um, so um, um, to sort of feed back, um, feed, um, so you basically give it punishment when it does something bad, reward when it does something good. But you can also use evolutionary computation. And evolutionary computation sort of works at a higher level um, because it tries to search the space of the whole network. Um, it doesn't do sort of, um, it doesn't sort of look at um, what um, uh, what feedback it got on, on an individual sort of prediction? It looks at um, the whole network and puts it out there, lets it sort of do its job, and then basically keeps the ones that are best, throws away the bad, the bad ones, and so on. And in, sometimes this can be a very inefficient process. But the beautiful thing about it is that it, it's an extremely general process that works for almost everything. Hmm. So um, evolution can be can be used for training your networks out of lots of different things as well. Interesting. Okay. That's helpful. And, uh, I, and I read someplace you mentioned, uh, on your opponent's research where, you know, you use AI to essentially, uh, increase or decrease, let's say the level of a opponent that, uh, he might be playing on a video game. Um, and you said that this, uh, uh, research had, uh, um, applications outside of video games. I think I read, yeah. Um, what? Uh, yeah. What so, do you so, have in mind there? Yeah. <laughs> so basically, I mean, when you look at game research, there's some people that think that, well, game research. Why isn't this guy doing anything useful with his life? <laughs> and uh, you know, why right. is he wasting his time and someone's money? You know, and yeah. <laughs> this is ridiculous. But I mean, first of all, first of all, even if game research had no use outside of games. I still think it would be worthwhile because the games are like an important part of the country. It's like oh, yeah. becoming the most important part of yep. the country, I think. I mean, people people don't want I've never really been much for watching TV. And the next generation is going, not going to watch TV at no. all and just play games. Constantly. So, um, because there's just so much more engaging, because there's so much more interactive. Um, uh, what else can you say? I mean, Games have also been found to have um, all these learning effects. So games are increasingly being used um, in educational settings. You teach things in the form of games. 
because games are fun to a large extent because we are learning as we're playing them. So games are masters at teaching you when you play them, how to play them. Because a game that's trivial is no fun at all. A game that's impossible and when you can't make progress is no fun at all. And those games which most, I mean, a very large portion of why we think games are fun are because we are gradually getting better at them. So they're sort of ultimate um, ultimate learning masters in a sense. They're ultimate teaching masters. Of you. Um, <clears throat> and this aspect of games not very, is very much being used um, in schools, in the workplace and so on to teach all kinds of other content which is not usually thought of as um, being inside a game. Yeah. Um, so teaching mathematics and teaching history and so on. So um, but so it has these so-called serious, these so-called serious games have very real applications. But then when you look at it outside of games as well, I mean, um, you have um, every game is a model of something. So if you're playing a flight simulator, it's a, um, it's, um, it's a model of time. So play, if you're driving and a driving game, is a model of driving. If you're playing Civilization, which is a big strategy game, then it's basically a model of managing a country or something. Um, and uh, if a method could be used in this game, it could also, to some extent, be used in the sort of natural process, process that it is modeling. So if you're, for, for methods for driving a car, for example, um, could, of course, be useful in terms in for self-driving cars. And that's actually happening right now. I know people who are um, training um, neural networks to drive cars and driving simulators, which could then be used um, in uh, in actual self-driving cars so that could be driving, you know, that will be driving on our roads within a couple of years. Hmm. Um, and if you look at other, other games, like strategy games are obviously to some extent um, um, uh, based on military conflict. And if you want to come up with a good tactics, a good strategy um, automatically, well, <clears throat> then that is going to be very useful for you um, as well. Um, uh, and I could go on. You know. <laughs> I bet. Um, um, <laughs> I mean, I mean they, have, yeah, they have relations they have relations to sports, relations to all kinds of problem solving. Um, <clears throat> and and uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> what have you? <laughs> yeah, well, and I mean, you made the point at the beginning where you went from, and it was smart from robotics to video games because you can just test stuff so quickly. And there's yeah. very f yeah. few environments, it seems like, where that's the case. You might have, like, this large data set, but then yeah. that's the data. Here you can, like, generate yeah. new levels. You can keep uh, testing. And, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting space to uh, – and I hadn't thought about it much, you know, yeah. using uh, video games to improve uh, um, neural networks and AI. But uh, it makes Oh, sense. yeah, no. So, so we, we recently launched – I mean, um, I've been, I've been uh, involved in a number of – setting up a number of sort of – game-based AI competitions. Huh. So we, 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 we build an AI competition from a game, and then people submit the best AI controllers to play the game. So we built one based on a racing game, um, and we built one based on Super Mario Bros., or several versions of the one based on Super Mario Bros. Recently, um, um, we observed that people tend to specialize too much on a particular game problem, and that is a problem because we get much, much more less generic solutions because intelligence is not being able to solve one problem well. 
intelligence is being able to um, adapt to any problem that you know you might uh, um, <clears throat> you might see, and that's why basically a chess playing computer such as Deep Blue that um, won um, the grandmaster title from the best human, but can't do anything else on playing chess. It's not a very intelligent program because mm-hmm. it can't do anything else on playing chess. So recently we've set up this thing we call the general video game AI competition or general video game playing competition where people submit their best um, general video game playing AIs and and they can train them on like currently we have 60 different games in the training set um, <clears throat> and then um, they are tested on a number of new games um, which they don't know before. So basically they don't know what games they're going to play when they develop the AI. The AI doesn't even know um, what game it is playing until it's put wow. there. And sort of, you know, here you go. And then we're testing them on the capability of playing new games that they've never seen, which is pretty cool. Um, and I think this is becoming more and more, more and more becoming the future. Um, and it is also becoming very popular, this competition. So people are um, <clears throat> developing more and more um, and, uh, agents and um, sort of sophisticated solutions for this is really sort of driving the research into this, some some kind of um, AI methodologies. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, this idea of like training in, tra- training algorithms not on, on a single problem, but on a whole number of different problems. So it is, becomes flexible and can adapt with anything that, you know, life gives it. Interesting. And, so with the procedural content generation, how, you know, I, I think I read that, you know, you want to make uh, some of these algorithms even more creative than humans or, you know, maybe a different oh, yeah. creative. And and how, so how does that work? Can you explain, like, if you have, like, a, a PCG uh, um, project going on now, like, how do you start training the neural network to design something from, yeah, from scratch? It's not, it's not always a neural network. I mean, you don't, you don't always have to have a neural network. So um, uh, in this case, I mean, but evolution is very commonly used in this case. Okay. So for example, when it came to StarCraft maps, we used evolution computation. We had a number of very simple StarCraft maps. <clears throat> um, uh, and then we, you know, as a fitness function to tell how good they are, um, then we, um, we uh, um, tested how playable they were in various ways. So we tested... Um, how much they have, um, um, uh, whether you can go get from base one base to another, whether there are short points along the way, whether there are lots of resources around and so on. And then we kept those that were better to await those that were worse, so basically this evolutionary method. But there are lots of other methods as well. You can use um, constraint satisfaction, which is a mathematical um, algorithm that um, tries to, it also does a kind of search. Most of, most of these algorithms does some kind of search and, and for good game content. Um, but basically, <clears throat> um, constraint satisfaction looks at searches for, if you set up a number of constraints that good content needs to satisfy, and then and the algorithm searches um, the content space for good, um, good levels of maps or something that satisfy all those constraints. Um, there are those methods that are based on Grammar expansion, um, where you define a grammar um, that can um, <clears throat> be expanded, like like basically like English grammar can be expanded into English sentences. You can define a grammar that can be expanded into game levels or 
um, the vegetation to put into a game level or personalities or something like that. So this is so, so there's lots of different methods available uh, here. I'm somewhat partial to using evolutionary computation, but yeah. Okay, interesting. And, 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 it, and what what's the input? You know, for uh, when you're designing a game, what are you feeding the yeah whatever yeah. Yeah, so basically, the big problem when using evolutionary computation to design a level is to decide there's, there's two problems. One is how you're going to represent the level. Basically, um, if you're going to, I'm taking the game level as an example, but it could be lots of different things. So, take, say you have a Super Mario Bros. level. Um, <clears throat> one is like, how are you going to encode this level or represent this level in numbers yeah. that can be ma manipulated by, by, by the evolutionary algorithm? The other is the evaluation of fitness function. How do you tell what's a good Super Mario Bros. level? Um, so we've done research, for example, where we looked at um, a couple of very common design features from Super Mario Bros. levels, so design patterns, call them, which we identified by hand. Um, and then we um, and, and, and then we searched the space, so using, so, so we put them into the fitness function. The fitness function is um, um, how many different design patterns does this level express? And also, is it playable? Can you get from the, to the end, from the beginning to the end without it being impossible gaps you can't jump over or something? Um, and then you search space for levels that express these different patterns. Um, so there's no really input in, as such, because basically, um, you have absolutely random levels from the beginning. Um, the real trick is finding out good representation that can be searched, and to find a good fitness function. That's the that's the really really complicated part because finding a good fitness function for some kind of um, creative domain, it's it's like saying that you automatically can recognize what's a good creative product and what's not. It's like you know. Say you wanted a good fitness function for paintings, well, that would be like being able to tell what's good art from bad art, and no one can do that really. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it's really complicated. And and I mean, telling a good Super Mario Bros. level from bad Super Mario Bros. level, it's easier than you know than saying whether Jackson Pollock is actually a good painter or not. But um, it's very very far from trivial. Interesting. So, we're looking into actually using, learning that from data, looking at lots of existing Super Mario Bros. levels, for example, and automatically finding um, training, in this case, neural nets, um, to uh, recognize what really, what really sets the, the good ones apart from the bad ones, and then using this in the fitness function to train these things. So with the, um, And this is also what I'm talking about, where I'm, where I'm talking about um, um, uh, computers being more creative than humans because humans are not very creative. Um, you tell a human to be creative, <laughs> and the human will usually basically copy something some other human did. And <clears throat> and they're very convention bound. They just do things that um, that they uh, um, uh, they do things that um, according to all kinds of conventions they might not even know about. Like, of course, you draw straight lines, and you know, um, and a square always has four corners, and things like this. Um, whether um, a search algorithm, such as an evolutionary algorithm, um, doesn't give a shit essentially. No, no. <laughs> it's sort of. <laughs> it, well, just, it just, it just, it just, it just does various modifications, 
and tries them out and looks at their stunts like and like oh interesting let's go this way <laughs> well and one of my favorite parts from the i read on the, the go you know with google being the go champion is that the some go like experts were looked at all the moves and the 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 google go player was performing some moves that they had never seen before or they didn't think about that oh, yeah. and so to your point you know it's just they yeah. created something entirely new essentially that uh, oh, yeah. humans have thought sure, about. because it doesn't think the same way no so, <laughs> no <laughs> so, go, go. so it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't follow the conventions about what what a good goal, goal move should be for example no and i know we're coming to the end here and i but i i was, I was curious about that with the um Super Mario Brothers example. So, like, would you essentially map out a level so, like, the a pipe would be a um, or a tube would be, you know, like a, a, a certain number at a certain location um, on a sort of a yeah. coordinates or... So, so one common representation we use is that we divide it up into slices. And we basically look at like things that are sort of one tile wide. One tile is like you know half a pipe or okay. the width of Super Mario himself, and then we sort of slice up the levels. And then we figured out that lots of slices that we used a lot of times are actually, you only need like 25 or so to cover like 95% of the original Super Mario Bros. games um, levels. And then we can sort of just represent the Super Mario Bros. as a sequence of these slices, the uh, Super Mario Bros. level. So basically, the representation will be like, you know, at positions. So basically, like, like just a list of numbers like um, 0, 12, 15, 0, 0, 1. 1822 etc um, um, and, uh, and 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 then we can search um, the space of such lists of numbers interesting interesting okay yeah. makes sense and uh and, oh good no no go ahead <laughs> i was gonna say so this is a uh, probably the last question since we're running out of time here and i definitely appreciate your time right. chatting and uh i i was curious what uh yeah, what type of uh, um, some of your current projects? If you have one that you oh, yeah. want to share, I'm sure you're. I'm sure you're interested in all of them. But <laughs> and with yeah, but no, true. is there one especially? I'm super interested in. Right now, I'm very interested in um, learning design style for particular levels um, on a pretty granular level. So taking Starcraft levels, for example and trying to predict features from one um, level. I mean, I mean, predict some aspects of the level from, from, um, uh, from just the raw data. So basically, you, have, you just feed in um, uh, the pixels of a StarCraft map and trying to figure out how long time does this um, StarCraft map take? Um, or does it, um, <clears throat> is it easier to, um, for, as a Terran or a Protoss to play this? These are different sort of factions or races in, in the StarCraft game. Um, or um, um, will this game be uh, won by a particular strategy or is another strategy going to be more more effective And just training this based on raw data? Um, but also like, you know, looking at like, can you take just a part of this level um, and, uh, <clears throat> and, um, uh, and predict the rest of the level from it? So you sort of complete the level if you only have a slice of it. And this is useful. Both of these is very useful because, I mean, I do think that um, I'm working on, you know, if I, if I talk to academics, I tell them that I'm going to 
replace all game dishonest with algorithms and everybody is happy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and <laughs> so basically, I mean, I mean, all my family are artists, so I, oh. um, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm I, I wouldn't be afraid of um, making them unemployed if it wasn't that the artists don't make any money anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> now, if, if 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 I talk to game designers, I'm not telling them I'm going to try to try to sort of solve all the creative stuff for them. And I am telling them that I am making software which will help them with the work, because, I mean, when you, when you put AI um, against humans in this sort of false dichotomy, and then you ask like who's going to win, the AI or the human, and you sort of doing us all a disservice in a sense because actually what's going to win is the union of AI and human. So basically um, humans augmented by AI that does as much as possible all these things that AI does better than humans. So for example, for designing games, I'm thinking of coming up with systems that um, that um, sort of becomes one with you and as you design the game, it helps you in all kinds of ways. It's sort of a creative collaborator um, that does your bidding and helps you in all kinds of ways. So you're designing a game level, and uh, and and the system helps you with suggestions. Hmm, maybe you should put the base over here, or mm. well, you, I'm not sure you should put a, put this mountain over here because that um, basically makes uh, it makes the space of viable strategies much smaller. Or um, maybe um, currently this level really disadvantages players that play this particular faction. Maybe you should add like um, an observation tower over here um, or something like this and constantly gives you feedback suggest changes check the level for you in various ways so it becomes like so it becomes one with your creative expression yeah, that's a good your, partner your creative yeah. through this AI system in a sense and that that has implications I mean in many different fields any type oh, of yeah. design creative you know whether it's software oh, yeah. or, well like you said art or um yeah lots yeah, of lots good. of spaces interesting huh and so it, i mean our tools define our creative expression all the, all the time so basically the new generation of tools will just have ai in them and be intelligent in themselves and we're going to be i mean functionally um we human creators are going to sort of be joined with these um, ai empowered tools in a sense well, that sounds exciting. <laughs> I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to be AI empowered. Um, yeah, uh, I, I like. It. I'll have to check out to uh, follow your research closely. So when you start publishing this a little more in this space, that's that'll be a really interesting to see. Um, well, I think we uh, have unfortunately come to the end of the interview, but definitely I really appreciate your time, Julian. This has been uh, fascinating for me. Thank you. I always, I always appreciate it. So, so thanks for having me. Definitely, and uh, um, yeah, I'll I'll keep a close eye, and hopefully uh, the audience will too, on what you're doing, and uh, <laughs> and thank uh, and thank everyone for ever listening to another uh, episode of Flower Labs, and definitely appreciate it. And uh, bye to everyone, and thanks again, Julian. Bye. Bye.